This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. A lot of people think if you've made it in Hollywood or if you made it in pop music or pop culture, life must be really great. You're rich and famous and people love you and you have a huge social media presence and you get covered in all the hipster magazines. But we know the opposite also can be true. Consider Kate Spade or Robin Williams, who both committed suicide. Stars who've died of drug overdoses like Michael Jackson or Prince. And there are countless others who admit to struggling with depression or anxiety. And certainly the famous aren't the only ones to suffer in this way. But all these cases point to the great need this world has for the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Hebrews 9.27 reminds us it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So we're going to talk about it today with Ray Comfort. Ray is founder and CEO of Living Waters and bestselling author and co-host with actor Kurt Cameron of the award-winning TV program, The Way of the Master, and executive producer of movies like Audacity and 180. His latest book is actually two books under one cover. This is kind of clever. It's called The Final Curtain, Fame, Fortune, and Feudal Lives, along with From the Ledge. And Ray, it's so great to welcome you back. How are you? Wonderful. You know, two people can read that book at once, like a husband and wife just sit each side of the table and one reads upside one day, one yes. way, the other, the other. The I other know, way. I know. Great for fellowship. I know. I was thinking that you could really have two people at the table, and one could read one, and one could read the other simultaneously. <laughs> Why examine the issue of depression and suicide among the famous? I know a lot of people talk about this, but th- this is an interesting subject for you to tackle. Well, there's a reason I did it. Um, I have tried. I had a publicist trying to get me uh, a secular publisher for that book, and no one would pick it up. And it's because suicide is particularly in America at the moment, is just a depressing subject. Uh, We've got an epidemic of suicide, 45,000 people taking their lives every year. 45,000, that's a stadium full of people, plus half a million ending up in in the hospital because they have attempted suicide. And so uh, there's this epidemic, but people who have had a loved one commit suicide uh, don't want to come near a book because it's such a raw, painful subject. Uh, subject. And people who have never had someone commit suicide aren't interested. It's got nothing much to do with them. But it has because we're Christians and we care about other people and it should grieve us uh, that people are actually taking their own lives. So what I decided to do was look closely at celebrity suicide because that colors the subject up a little bit, if I may say that. Tragedy, though it is that a celebrity is depressed or commits suicide, Everything they do is fascinating to the average person. What they eat, what they wear, what they like, what they don't, what they don't like, etc. What they drive, no matter what, who they're going with. And so their philosophies about life and death are fascinating to us. So that's why we've included uh, so many of these celebrities that suffer from the same things the average person does. Right. Well, like I said at the outset, a lot of people believe that you have it made. If you're a big star and you're rich and famous, then everything must be okay. Why do you think it is that we see so many cases of suicide among famous people and depression and anxiety? Because from a human standpoint, I'm sure a lot of people believe, why does anybody who has all she has or all he has feel depressed in the first place? 
Well, it's important to realise that, uh, and this is a contention I have with the, with the mainstream secular society, they say anyone who is depressed suffers from mental disease. It's very common to say that. It's only happened in the last 30 or so years. Psychology didn't call depression a disease or a mental disease until 30 years ago. Once they did, once they labelled it, it opened the door to pharmaceutical uh, products which generate billions of dollars. So there's an incentive there. Um, but I believe life is utterly depressing for the average person. Hmm. Uh, if you think about it, we've all got our daily problems, die in the eye, headaches, dandruff, whatever, just annoying things. You know, the dog's thrown up, cat's bought <laughs> in a dead bird, the can't pay the bills, the car's broken down. Yeah. Life's painful enough as it is, but we've all got this fear of cancer, which is fair enough because there's so many cancers that, that, that can't even be cured, and the cure sometimes is as bad as the disease. And then there's death coming on top of that. And this is a horrible subject to talk about, but 10 out of 10 die. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews uh, 2.15 that every human being all their lifetime is haunted by the fear of death. And so if you're a Christian, you've got something to control your fears. I mean, I, when I pass through death, when the biggest moment of my life comes and I pass into eternity, I can control my fears through faith. And that kind of sounds weak to some people, but if the analogy is used, you're standing on the edge of a plane, you've got no parachute on, it's horrific. But if you've got a parachute on, you can control your fears by the amount of faith you have in that parachute. If you mm -hmm. totally trust the parachute, you say, "Wee, I'm going to jump. No fear. But if you don't trust the parachute, you're going to have a lot of fear. And so when we pass through death as Christians, we know that as much as we trust God, we're going to be free from the, the terror of death. But the non-Christian has nothing to control the fears. And so they're tormented daily. And this is what we've looked at closely in the book that these celebrities that get depressed are only depressed because life is depressing. And so experts say you've got a mental disease like the 350 million other people around the world that suffer from depression. And that adds to the depression of a celebrity. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about it. If you're well known and the tabloids follow you around and then you're diagnosed with mental disease, they're going to be watching you to see what you do next. It's kind of crazy because you've got a mental disease. But it's not a mental disease. You're just a thinking person that thinks about life and life is depressing. And we have the answer in the gospel. And that's why Christians need to step up to the plate. So we've got the answer for these people, for the right. millions of them right. that live a life of futility, tormented by the fear of death. Well, and we're living in a society, as you all know, Ray, that it increasingly believes in a Darwinian evolution perspective and <clears throat> is increasingly saying, eh, I don't really know if there's a God. I'm kind of agnostic about it. Or maybe I'm a full-blown atheist. When you willingly take God out of the picture, you may feel morally free to do whatever you want, but you end up paying the price with hopelessness, don't you? That's exactly right. You stand on your own oxygen host. You leave yourself without hope. And we've got a generation that has been left without hope. You know, atheism is a form of intellectual insanity. It, it really is. It's a, it's, it's a willful insanity. To believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything is crazy. Nothing can't create anything. Right. And when I challenge people and say, so you're an atheist, so you really do believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything, they go real quiet because they haven't thought very deeply about what they believe. All, they be all they've thought about is the fact that they can now get into sin, fornication, lying, stealing, adultery, uh, pornography, whatever, without qualms of conscience if you get rid of God. You can sear your conscience and get rid of it. They haven't thought about what they really believe. And when atheists do, I've seen them many times, 
backslide and say, well, I don't believe nothing created anything. It was just something. Hmm. So I say, well, let's see if we can figure out why you don't want it to be the God of the Bible. That's something. And you find out the, the issue is not intellectual, it's moral. Well, that's right. Exactly. That, and that's what you've said for quite a while. And I agree with you completely that it is a moral problem that ultimately a lot of these atheists have with God. I don't want to bow the knee. That's really what it is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's rebellion. Men love darkness and hate the light. Neither will they come to the light. And the thing is, an atheist is going to fight you tooth and nail uh, when it comes to the gospel because of the fact that everything he holds dear to him is being threatened. What we have in Christianity is a huge wet blanket as far as they're concerned. And yet, it's not. You know, God just says, you can have your sex, but just stay within the rules. It's like your father gives you a car and says, stay on the right side of the road and don't get drunk when you drive. Mm-hmm. Okay, rules. But if you don't obey the rules, you're going to suffer consequences. And we've got a generation that is suffering terrible consequences because they're not obeying the rules. There's uh, trans- um, um, diseases, sexually transmitted diseases. There's guilt. Uh, there's hopelessness that leads many to suicide. And and so when the gospel comes, the miracle is that God changes our heart, so we love righteousness. Yes. That's a, a miracle for sin-loving sinners. We care about right and wrong. We want to obey the rules because God's commanded his love toward us and Christ dying for us, so we're filled with gratitude. So we have the greatest news this generation could ever hope to hear. And Janet, i just got to say this. Our YouTube channel has got over 62 million views. We are blown away that finally we've been able to make inroads into the world through this medium uh, of uh, YouTube. So we're we're absolutely encouraged. That is really encouraging because there is a dark and dying world out there that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ray Comfort is with me. The name of the book, one of them at least, The Final Curtain, Fame, Fortune, and Feudal Lives. We're going to come back on Janet Mafford today right after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger, or especially hunger, is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people, and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. 
You can be the answer to a Bibleless believer praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and your gift right now of any size will help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Ray Comfort is joining me. His book, The Final Curtain, Fame, Fortune, and Feudal Lives, and it's actually two-in-one. If you turn the cover over, you'll find another book, From the Ledge, A Conversation with Comfort. It really is the case that you're seeing more and more suicides, and it is very baffling to a lot of people. Why would anybody want to kill themselves? You know, Ray, another aspect of this is we see a real movement to denigrate life. We see this in the abortion movement, and increasingly we're seeing this in the end-of-life discussions about death with dignity, so-called, and euthanasia. How in the world can a culture that devalues life turn around and suddenly say, Robin Williams' suicide was a tragedy, when on the other hand, they promote people killing themselves who want to have physician-assisted suicide? It's just completely inconsistent. Yeah, and even when whales want to commit suicide, they stop them doing it. The whole world unifies, gets on a beach, and pushes them out to sea when they want to end it all. Yes, (laughs) you're right, you're right. It doesn't make sense. Let them do it if they want to. It is. It's just the the inconsistency uh, of this world. And, you know, the great encouragement to me is that all these issues have one common denominator. You've got, uh, if if I was to say, what's the greatest sin of America? We'd say it's abortion, it's homosexuality, it's adultery, it's fornication, whatever. Uh, But there's one sin that's prevalent that from all all these sins issue from, and that's the, uh, the one that God saw fit to address in the first two of the Ten Commandments, the issue of idolatry. Right. Uh, when you create a God in your own image, then you can do what you want because he doesn't have a moral dictate. And if you study uh, Second World War, Hitler was an idolater. He wasn't an atheist. He believed in God, but was a God of his own imagination that, that hated the Jews. And Jesus wasn't Jewish. He was an Aryan. And he made up his own 12 commandments and 100,000 copies of his own Bible printed. Um, so idolatry gives license to uh, to uh, have your own moral standards, which can o- often include murder and the killing of children in the womb. And so what we need to do is bring the fear of the Lord back to our nation. Mm-hmm. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And many of our uh, popular preachers and pulpits are more like motivational speakers. They should have been plumbers or electricians. But they mm-hmm. certainly aren't. Uh, men of uh, sons of thunder preaching righteousness in the great congregation and we need to get back to that to proclaiming the ten commandments and letting the fear of god fill our congregations with the thunders and lightnings of the law and for them to go out in the streets and address men's consciences as jesus did yeah you know um uh in the second book the one the upside down smaller one on the other side uh called the ledge there's an interesting scenario because it's always uh haunted me what would i say to someone that was on the a ledge of a building, you know, five stories up, and I had to talk them down. You know, what would I say? Uh, how would I say it? My words could cause him to kill himself. So I, I thought about it and created this novel where I come up to a guy who's sitting on the Golden Gate Bridge in the fog, and he's going to kill himself. And I begin talking with him, and he's very cynical, uh, very hard. And I share with him a paradigm shift. And let me give you one. You probably know what one is, but see what you think of this. Uh, a man was born blind. He got onto a bus, and on the bus, a man stood up and gave him his seat. Was that a good thing to do? 
most people would say, sure, yes. Yes, yeah, you know better than saying yes. I, I'm always wondering if it's a trick question, but yes. <laughs> it is a trick question. Uh, it was actually a bad thing to do. The guy lost his job because of it, because he was the bus driver. Uh, I knew it. I knew you were yes. tricking me. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> and so that's, that's what we commonly call a paradigm shift, where information causes us to change our mind. Something right. that was good suddenly becomes bad with extra information. So I talk to this guy on the ledge and say, uh, I give him that paradigm shift or one like it and say, I've got information that's going to change your mind if you'll just listen. You think it's good for you to kill yourself, and I'm going to show you how it is really, really bad by giving you information. So the guy cynically says, okay, go on, preach a little message, go on, do it. And after some time, he changes his mind. It's a very fascinating, very interesting story. So, And it has the gospel interwoven within it. So this book is for uh, people who potentially could take their lives. And one of the scariest things about uh, suicide is that one sign that someone is about to commit suicide is that there are no signs. Yes. You know, someone we love and know today could be thinking of taking their own lives. So we need to share the gospel and be close to people and, and share our hearts with them, let them know we care about them and talk about this issue as Christians because we have the answer. Psychology or the world has no reason for the people to be uh, depressed. They don't know what causes depression and they don't know how to address it other than with medicinal uh, drugs that often the side effects can be worse than the original mm -hmm. disease. Sometimes they help, but most times they don't. Uh, it's a horror beyond words what those drugs can do to people. Well, right. let me ask you, and I don't want you to give away your paradigm shift. People can read it in the book. But if you have someone listening right now, let's just say a celebrity who's depressed, and maybe not a celebrity, but somebody who's depressed who says, yeah, you don't know my life though, Ray, because my life really doesn't matter. I've lost so much and I contribute so little to the world. And I think everybody and mostly I would be better off if I weren't here anymore. How would you immediately address that particular person if you only had a few minutes? Oh, I'd ask them if they'd sell one of their eyes for a million dollars. And most people think about it for a minute and I say, come on, a million dollars. What about five million? One of your eyes will... Take it out painlessly and slip it in the slot. You won't be able to see as good with it, but it'll look good. He'd say, oh, maybe. It's okay, would you sell them both for $100 million? And I've never met anyone in their right mind that says, yeah, I'd sell my eyes for $100 million. I mean, what are you going to do? See the world? Yeah. No, you won't see a thing if you've given up your eyes. Right. And it really shows how precious our eyes are to us. We're you know, so familiar, we've got a contempt. We don't think twice about them. But our eyes are merely the windows of the soul. So I'd say to this person, if your, your, your eyes are that valuable to you, how much is your life worth? Mm. Jesus said, what shall a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or loses his life? And you don't realize it, but the life that you're willing to give up because you're depressed is incredibly valuable to you. There's something in you that says, oh, I don't want to die. And that is God-given. He's placed eternity in our hearts. We're not like dogs or cats, horses or cows. We're not beasts, as evolution would tell us. We're made in the image of God. And there's something in us that says, oh, I don't want to die. And I'd say, listen to that and let it open your heart to what I'm going to tell you. And then I'd say, do you think you're a good person? And no doubt they would, because Scripture says most every man will proclaim their own goodness. And I say, well, let's go through the commandments and see how you do. And I ask, how many lies have you told? Have you ever stolen something? Ever used God's name in vain? Ever looked with lust and committed adultery in your heart? And then I address them and say, well, look, I'm not judging you, but you've just said you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart. And if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Mm -hmm. And conscience kicks in. That God-given judge on the, courtroom of the, on the courtroom of the mind says guilty. And would you go to heaven or hell? 
And they said, I think it ain't up in hell. And I said, well, you don't want to take your life and die in your sins because you're going to be out of the frying pan into the fire. You're going to make things worse. And then I'd share with them the gospel that Christ died for us while we were still sinners and that God commended his love to us and that they're of great value to God. They're not worthy of everlasting life, but they're of great worth to God to a point where he's made a place. Uh, uh, he's made a way for them to be forgiven and granted um, everlasting life as a free gift of God through repentance and faith in Jesus. So that's what I'd share with someone, and i just hope and pray that they would stay still. It's kind of like what a dentist has to do when he's probing uh, your teeth when you go in there. It hurts when he touches a, a raw nerve, but he keeps probing because he wants to find uh, where your teeth are rotting so he can replace them. And We probe with the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and it can be painful, but it's just because we don't want people to lose their soul right that's and, right uh, yeah well what we love them what about somebody who says i'm so sad you know i'm really deep in grief there are a lot of people who are very depressed for actual reasons they lost a spouse of 50 years or some lost a child something like that and they say does god really care about me right does god really care about my grief and somehow sometimes those those are the people that are occasionally really tough to get through to because they're so sad what would you say to that person well, there's a rational reason for them being sad, and time is a healer, and we're going to lose, all of us are going to lose all our loved ones if we don't go first. True. Everything in this life, we have to learn to hold with a loose hand. And so we've got to look to God and say, Father, you're the one that gave me that child that died. I was just in charge of that child for a certain amount of time, and you've promised that as a Christian, all things are working together for my good, because I love you and I'm called according to your purposes. So I'm going to give you thanks. Because we all get lion's dens, we all get red seas. And I've often thought when Daniel was in that lion's den, he could have cringed in a corner all night, just terrified, or he could have gone up to them and flossed their back teeth and tied their whiskers in a knot because they couldn't touch him. Hmm. And, uh, and that's what we've got to do when it comes to adversary. We've got to say, I'm going to conquer this thing. You know, I lost my mum and dad uh, a number of years ago. They died. And I learned to handle grief this way, and, and it's it maybe just the way I, it might be my, my nature to do so. But I cried my eyes out, uh, and then I said, I'm not going down Grief Street ever, ever again. It's a dead end. Hmm. I'm going to just move on with life and think positive thoughts about my parents because uh, there are people out there that are going to hell, and I, I've got to put my energies into reaching out to the lost. And that is, I've told a number of people that don't go down Grief Street. It's, it really is a dead end. It can't help you once you've grieved and poured your heart out and cried. Just move on with your life and get your heart into reaching out to the lost. Right. Right. With the unsaved people that lose a loved one, then I, that's when I'd say the same, almost the same thing, that, that God is the lover of the soul and he's commanded this love by Christ dying. And he wants to give everlasting life. And there's a new world coming there's no, where there's not going to be any more disease uh, decay, death, dandruff, or dentists. <laughs> well, that's right. That's exactly right. And I, I like how you point out in the book about the living hope that we have. You know, First Peter 1 talks about this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the mm. resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what gives us hope is the objective reality that Christ has saved us. And that's something that goes beyond my life or yours. Yes, and... In uh, in the book, Final Curtain, I address these each of these celebrities as if they were still alive. If they've taken their life, I have an imaginary witnessing session with them, like with Robin Williams. And uh, of all the people that should have been happy, it was Robin Williams. He was brilliant. He yes. was rich mm-hmm. until he got uh, into trouble with his marriages and had to pay alimony, etc. Right. right. Got financial difficulties, but he was incredibly depressed. But I can identify with him because I went through 
a really black time, a dark, dark time back in the 1980s. And often, you know, when people are depressed, thinking suicidal thoughts, a good night's sleep can actually help out. Things well, change. Right. Well, Ray Comfort, we've got to run, but the name of the book, The Final Curtain, Fame, Fortune, and Feudal Lives. Always good to talk to you, Ray. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Meffer today. From outcome-based education to No Child Left Behind to the Common Core Standards, America's public schools have had no shortage of attempts at reform. But how should we really think about the issue of education reform? Is it just a matter of continually implementing new programs or standards? Or is there some wisdom to be gleaned on how to think about education reform in the first place? We're going to talk about that today with education policy analyst Rick Hess, who is resident scholar and director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And we'll be talking about his book, Letters to a Young Education Reformer. And it's great to have you here, Rick. Thanks for being with us. Hey, my pleasure. Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, you have been an education reformer, I know, for a long time. You've seen all kinds of trends come and go. You're really, though, trying to focus in this book uh, on guiding people and how to think. Why do you think that's pretty much a really important overall umbrella to this whole discussion of education reform, that we're maybe not (laughs) thinking about it the correct way? Uh, No, it's a great question. I think a couple things. One, you know, education is filled with passionate people. I mean, it's great. (laughs) It's people who want to make the world a better place. One of the tricks with passion, though, is it can blind you. You can get so caught up in the heat of the moment that you make uh, mistakes that after the fact look dumb or obvious. Right. And so one is just trying to get people who want to do good things for kids to be more measured and disciplined. Two, the, the reality is that turns out with so much school improvement, whether you do it, whether you do a, something called a school turnaround or teacher evaluation, usually matters less than how well you do it. Hmm. And doing it well means thinking about how this affects the real lives of real kids in real schools. It means being careful about incentives. It means paying attention to when things go south. And sometimes reformers have got so caught up in their big plan or in trying to make something change that they have focused more on doing it than on how well it's done. Good. That's that's very important, right, because there are real people involved and real parents and real kids and real teachers. It's so true. Now, when you talk about the big R kind of reform versus the little R kind, what sort of distinction is there between those two types? Sure. Um, you know, what I, what I talk about in the book is big R reform, no child left behind, common core, uh, you know, new teacher evaluation systems um, generally come from a place where people are really trying to do good things for kids. But because they are so big, because they are usually driven out of Washington, because they are so far removed from real schools and real families, what happens is you wind up with teacher evaluation systems which label teachers good or bad simply on whether reading and math scores go up or down. Reading and math scores tell us something that we care about in terms of how kids are learning, how teachers are doing. 
But common sense <laughs> tells most people <laughs> that we want to be cautious about how much we put on a given number. But what happens when reform becomes big R is that common sense tends to fall out of the shuffle. So little r reform says, look, we want schools to be responsible for serving kids well. We want to make sure that curricula are uh, coherent and make sense. We want to make sure teachers are held accountable. But doing this stuff is complicated stuff. And we want to do it one step at a time with the ability to go back and make sure it's working. So it's really almost a matter of whether you're going to try to fix the whole world in one giant big R sweep or whether you're going to take this stuff step by step closer to schools and communities. Yeah. And this kind of drives my next question, because when you're talking about big R reform and you name some of those big programs that have been implemented and many of them have failed or people have turned on them in time, is big R reform flawed by definition simply because it is remote from the localized process? Yeah, you know, I think it. I think it's almost the case that reform becomes big R reform when we do it in foolish ways. So, look, a lot of states back in the '90s were doing uh, school accountability. They were because we knew that way too many kids were getting lost in the cracks. Uh, we knew that we were not, uh, you know, challenging uh, schools to do their best to serve every kid. And so the state started to build common sense accountability systems in reading and math. Uh, they had their problems, but because they were built state by state, the parents and state legislators could push to try to improve them. Right. What happened when uh, you know George W. Bush was elected in 2000 and went to Washington to try to improve, you know, make sure No Child was left behind, was he passed uh, the No Child Left Behind Act with Congress, which took these reasonable intuitions that schools should try to teach all kids that we should want to know how kids are doing on reading and math tests, uh, that schools should be accountable if they're just doing a, you know, a terrible job year after year. And from these reasonable in- intuitions, built this hugely complicated test crazy mousetrap that managed to take good ideas and drive them south. Yeah. So it's almost, it's almost not the problems with the ideas themselves as with whether we do them in good or bad ways. Yeah, that's so true. I have a really good friend who's a pu- been a public school teacher for many years, and she made the comment about No Child Left Behind, and she said, it's as if we teachers didn't even matter. She said, you know, mm-hmm. not every kid is going to get a top score. And she said, is that really the goal of what I'm trying to do in the classroom? Am I not supposed to work with each kid individually? They're not robots. And somehow, you know, we're made to feel as if, you know, we're all teaching to the test. And these are the sorts of things that teachers are really frustrated about. Yeah, you know, and, and- and I, I, I think those concerns are right. Um, I think there are certainly listeners and parents who are going to listen and say, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm concerned about the flip side, that some teachers are going to say, well, I can't help that kid. Right. Uh, and, and the way I think about this is, look, when I just got into teaching, I started substitute teaching for pizza money back in the late 80s <laughs> when I was teaching back in the 90s. It was, it was frighteningly easy to find teachers who would say, you know what? Those kids can't be taught. Yeah. Um, based on the way they look, based on their family circumstances. Um, I think one of the great successes of the last quarter century of school reform is we have changed that. It is now shameful when you hear a teacher say, I can't teach those kids because of, what because of their family situation. True. But in winning that healthy victory, what we have done is I think we've gone too far in the way that your friend points to, but we have now made it 
impossible for us to have an honest conversation where we say, look, teachers need to do their job well, but they can only do so much. There is also some responsibility that has to lie with the student and the family. And the question is, how do we ask the teachers do their job well without turning them into scapegoats Good. for students and families who are struggling with other challenges. Yes, that is such a huge issue because it does count where the child lives, the family situation, how much the parents are involved. What about that aspect of things? How do you reform the home? Because certainly the parents are just important as important to the educational process as the teachers when it comes down to it. Yeah, that's spot on. You know, what I like, when, when folks are having trouble kind of getting comfortable with this, what I'll say sometimes is, look, you know, if I take my son to the doctor um, and the doctor says, Rick, you know, he needs to lose some weight. And I take my son home and I keep feeding him a bag of Cheetos every night. We don't say my doctor's a bad doctor. Right. (laughs) Um, We we say that I'm not doing my part as a parent. So and I think, honestly, part of this is we have become uncomfortable as a country talking about parental responsibility. I don't know that I want legislatures doing anything to stick their, you know, you know, stick their hand into homes and try to micromanage parents. But I think as communities, I think as uh, adults, we have grown uncomfortable saying, you know what, there are some parents who are not kind of working with schools who when they their kid gets disciplined, they yell at the teacher. They don't punish the student. They don't make sure their kids do their homework. They're not making sure their kids get to school on time. And I think serious school reform has got to start not just by asking schools to do better, but also by expecting and asking these parents to do their share. I think you're so spot on about that, because if you don't have the parents willing to work with the teacher for the best interest of the child in the education of the child, then you're going to continually run into problems. And, and you know, if you don't deal with a child at a young age uh, cooperatively with the school system, then you're going to have increasing problems as the kid gets older. Well, my mom isn't going to back up the teacher if I don't do my homework. So why should I do more homework? Okay, It worked for me in the past. And that's that's such a great point. I want to dive into some of this in more detail when we come back from this break. Rick Hess is joining us. His book, Letters to a Young Education Reformer. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. When this young mom came to a preborn center, she was planning to have an abortion. 
But after receiving love and support and meeting her baby on ultrasound, she chose life. When I walked in for the ultrasound and I saw my baby and I heard his heartbeat, my mind changed completely. I couldn't do that to my baby. I decided to keep it. Preborn partners with clinics in cities with the highest abortion rates in the country. Will you help Preborn save these precious lives? When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. And that's just the beginning of the story. I know that with support and with God by my side, I'll be able to do this, not just for me, but for my baby. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a pre-born banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Meffer today. Rick Hess is joining us, resident scholar and director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute and author of Letters to a Young Education Reformer. And we're discussing some of these efforts that we've seen over the years to make public education better. To what extent is it the teacher's fault or the parent's fault or the student's fault or the government's fault? You have had lots of experience, Rick, along these lines. I'm curious to ask you, of the reforms that have been initiated over the years, Is there one that you think worked the best or we need more of? We need to return to a certain system that has been successful in the past? So that's a great question. Um, Let me me answer it uh, in two ways. First, uh, for my money, probably the reform that has had the most traction day in, day out uh, are school choice-based reforms. Mm. Not that they are any kind of magic solution and not that they always make test scores go up. But I think charter schools, I think school choice programs uh, have been a powerful way to help families find schools that are a good fit for their child's needs, uh, that help educators find schools uh, that fit with their own style of pedagogy and let them do their best work. I think the bigger the bigger picture, though, for me, and I don't mean that as any kind of, you know, oh, school choice is the answer. Um, I just think school choice has tended to be more sticky than a lot of these uh, spinning spinning fads of reform that come and go. Um, the bigger picture, though, I think is, look, we've been doing schooling uh, for centuries in this country. And our schools, while the core work of what they do is pretty timeless, uh, trying to build character, cultivate citizens, teach kids essential skills, while those things are constant, the best way to do that for kids uh, has changed over time as we've developed new technologies, as the labor pool has changed. And I think one of the big challenges is we keep trying to make the schoolhouse from 1917 um, serve all our kids well today. And it turns out to be a challenging way to do the work we need to do for kids. Yeah, go back to that a little bit, because that's intriguing to me. When you talk about the schoolhouse of 1917, what have been some of the holdovers in education that need to be updated, that work better? Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, for let's keep in mind that a century ago, only about one American in 10 finished high school. Right. Um, and it didn't much matter because three quarters of working adults worked in agriculture or manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So today we want to graduate all of our kids. We're over 85%. And we know they're going to work in fields that require, you know, more sophisticated skills. So, one, we want schools to do a lot more than they used to. But when we look at them, look at 
the way we teach, for instance. We have a teaching force which was built back in the era when college-educated women had few other avenues open to them besides teaching. Um, and we have a teaching force built for an era when the average college graduate was only going to have four or five jobs before they retired. So to go out to campus and try to recruit 22-year-old young women to do the same job into for the next 30 years was a perfectly sensible way to try to attract and keep great educators in the 1940s or 1950s. It's just that it turns out to be a terrible way to attract hardworking and talented um, you know, new college graduates in 2017. Uh-huh. This doesn't mean that teachers are doing anything wrong. It does mean that we need to think differently, I think, about how we go out and attract and then cultivate and keep great educators. Yeah, that's really important. And going back to something else that you just mentioned, the school choice-based reforms that you said have been very effective, very sticky, I think you said. School choice has run up against a lot of problems, as everybody knows, from teachers' unions. To what extent would you say teachers' unions stand in the way of reform? Certainly, I wouldn't say that they're always opposed to reform. Sometimes they're pro-reform. But what about that fight that goes on between people who really want to give parents and kids a better option for a school? Maybe they live in kind of a failing area. They want to be able, it's a waiting for Superman movie all over again. What about (laughs) teachers' unions? Do you think that they're good for education? Do you think that they're overall detrimental? How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, um, you know, I think it's appropriately complicated. Um, I think unions are going to do what we expect them to do, which is fight for their members. Sometimes what their members want is best for kids. In many cases, it's not. When you, teachers unions protect uh, expensive pension plans and extremely expensive health care plans, mm-hmm. those are dollars that are not getting spent on kids. Right. When unions oppose school choice plans, um, I think they're standing in the way of families that want to have their kids better served. And frankly, they're standing in the way of educators sometimes who are frustrated by the bureaucracy uh, and, and the management in their local school system, but who can't go work there anywhere else very easily unless they pick up and move to another place. Yeah. Um, so the funny thing is I think reformers have sometimes made it easier on unions to do the wrong thing. When reformers push forward accountability policies or teacher evaluation plans, which are goofy, uh, which you know, are so focused on reading and math scores that they seem to lose sight of the real world. Uh, when they are holding teachers um, accountable for things that parents think don't make any sense to hold teachers accountable for, when that happens, the reformers drive teachers to the union and the teachers look to the union to protect them. One of the funny things is that the more sensible and measured reform is, the more regular teachers are not going to want to line up with the union, and the more manageable it is to reform even when the unions are opposed. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I wonder what your thoughts are on how public schools in America overall are doing in actually educating kids. There's always discussion about previous generations. Well, I read many more books. We were much better read. We had a much better handle on geography and history. And these days, they're spending so much time on technology. These kids don't know as much as we did. What's your assessment on what kids actually know and how well-rounded they are educationally when they leave the public schools? It's funny. Um, you know, we, we worry appropriately that our kids don't even know, you know, what's in the Bill of Rights. Right. 
Um, it's funny, though. It's, uh, back in 1987, there was a book done, What Our 17-Year-Olds Know, which pointed out that our kids didn't know what half-century the Civil War was fought. <laughs> um, Oops. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I think, you know, when it comes to things that we want our American kids to know about the world, uh, geography, history, uh, the unfortunate reality is today's uh, this performance of kids today is dismal, uh, and the performance has been dismal going back a half century. Um, when it comes to reading math, the funny thing is we're actually doing a little better uh, over time. We only have data that goes back about uh, 25 or 30 years. Um, that's actually not true. We have data that goes back about a half century overall. And uh, the reality is our schools have been making uh, steady improvements that flattened out in recent years over the last quarter century. Um, but when you look at these performance levels internationally, you see that even with steady improvements, uh, the U.S. is generally falling in the middle of the pack when it comes to international comparisons, yeah. even though we're spending as much per kid uh, as any nation in the world. What's that add up to? For me, it adds up to not horrible, but certainly mediocre performance. Probably, you know, at best, a, uh, a C or a C plus. Hmm. Yeah, which is not the grade we want. I mean, that's not what we want. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> not even close. And that's, I mean, that's a really important consideration. So when you're talking to people, parents or educators, about how to think about education reform, what is the wisdom you've gleaned over the years? What would you do differently or recommend differently than you may have 20 years ago? You know, I think the biggest thing I've learned over time is that I used to think school reform was mostly about having good ideas and wanting to do good things for kids. Uh, and I think the biggest thing I've learned is that good intentions, when it comes to something this complicated that affects so many other people's children, that good intentions and good ideas count for a lot less than we wish they did. Mm-hmm. What counts for a lot more than I used to appreciate is the willingness to roll up your sleeves to stick with one proposal day after day, month after month, year after year, to learn from it and figure out how to actually make it deliver uh, in real schools for real kids. And the funny thing is whether it comes to philanthropy or government jobs or the way, you know, or what gets attention in newspapers and the news media is you get attention by hopping from one thing to the next rather than rolling up your sleeves and sticking with it. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, and I love how you say it's really important to talk to people rather than at them. That's always good advice and so important for people to keep in mind. Well, a great book, Letters to a Young Education Reformer, Rick Hess, joining us from the American Enterprise Institute. And it was so great to have you here, Rick. Thank you very, very much for being with us. Hey, thank you much. It was my pleasure to be on. All right. Thanks again. Take care. And thank you for being here. Janet Mefford today. You can find more about us over at JanetMefford.com. We'll see you there. Thanks a lot for listening. This hour has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.